Industrial Light and Magic, LucasArts, Skywalker Sound, Lucasfilm Animation. This is Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z. Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and the rest of the team at Lucasfilm have dreamed up over the past 40 years. We go all the way back, back to Electronic Labyrinth THX 11384EB, which, for those of you who don't know, is George Lucas's student film from USC. I'm your host, Jim Hill, and this podcast, it's part of the effort we're making to bump out the borders of what Len Test and I have been doing with Disney Dish this past few years. That show primarily focuses on the parks and resorts, the behind-the-scenes stories of specific ride shows and attractions. But face it, the Walt Disney Company is, is so much more than just its theme parks. That's why late last year, Aaron Adams and I launched the Marvelous Disney podcast. That show shines a spotlight on Marvel Entertainment. That's the comic book and action hero company that Disney acquired back in August of 2009 for $4 billion is up to. But given that Disney is doing equally interesting things with Lucasfilm, I wanted to get a podcast in the works that, about that division of Disney as well. But here's the thing. In order for a podcast like this to work, you need a specific mix of elements. First of all, you need a goon like me who's willing to hammer on Google, uh, someone who's an act for unearthing weird bits of entertainment trivia, uh, fun chunks of Hollywood history that... People have either already forgotten or, to be frank, stories that the studio would really prefer you not talk about. But then you need the expert. You need somebody who knows that subject matter that that show is built around better than anyone else on the planet. And when it comes to theme parks, there's no one who knows those places, how they operate better than Lentesta. Likewise, Aaron Adams, he's forgotten more about the 70 years of history associated with Marvel Entertainment than I'll ever remember. And then when it came time for JHM to get a Lucasfilm-related podcast up out of the ground, there was really only one guy I wanted as the foe to my bead. Phantom Menace were there. I hope people get it. And that stands a hair from Coffee with Kenobi. Anyone who's read the stories that he's written for StarWars.com or perused the pieces that Dan has done for IGN knows that Mr. Z is the guy when it comes to being the authority on all things Star Wars. Besides, if you've already listened to Coffee with Kenobi, you know this guy regularly serves up a hugely entertaining podcast, which is why I'm so excited that Dan actually agreed to do Looking at Lucasfilm with me. So, Mr. Z, please get in here. And for that handful of folks who don't or aren't already aware of your Star Wars bona fides, can you please tell our listeners how long ago you were first introduced to this tale that started a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away? Absolutely. Thank you so much for that wonderful, very generous intro. I appreciate that. And I love that you actually threw in a Phantom Menace reference right away. That, by the way, for people who may not be sure who Fode and Beat are, they are the announcers from the pod racing from episode one, The Phantom Menace. That is really going into the archives, my friend. Very good. Well, I'm a Greg Proops fan. What can I tell you? So. Seattle Mariners announcer, too. Oh, that that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So anyway, when did this become a big part of your entertainment life? When I was a kid, Star Wars had just come out in theaters, and we were not allowed to see PG movies. We only were allowed to see Disney movies, ironically, because they were G-rated. And we loved them. They were animated and all that good stuff. So then we saw commercials on TV for Star Wars. We thought it was interesting, but we didn't think it would be something necessarily. When I say we, I mean, my parents didn't necessarily think it would be something that we could see. 
because who knows, right? It's called wars and it's PG and there's and there's guns in it, although we didn't know they were called blasters at the time. So my cousin had seen it and she had told my mother, hey, there's a little bit of shooting, but there's no blood and it's not really violent. It's really fun. I think the boys will like it because my brother and I really wanted to go. We tried five or six different occasions to go, and this was well before Fandango. So it's not as if we could go and order our tickets online, which makes me sound like I'm 100, but I'm actually not. <laughs> and so then uh, one day we were driving and it was in the evening and we pulled up to this little booth and I didn't know what was going on. And my dad rolled down the window and said to a person in the window, four for Star Wars. And my brother and I looked at each other and I said, we seeing Star Wars? And they said, yeah, we're going to see it at this drive-in theater. So the first time I saw Star Wars was in a drive-in theater in New Orleans, Louisiana in the summer of 1978. And it was just before I turned six years old. So it was something that I will never forget. I remember, you know, you can't imagine what it must be like as a five-year-old, unless you're one of the people listening now that experience this, where you're seeing Star Wars and there's TIE fighters and the Millennium Falcon, and then you're underneath the actual real stars in the atmosphere. It was just something I never oh, forgot. Oh, man. That's that beautiful. would have been cool. It was so cool. And you'll love this. Before mm-hmm. we had seen it, because we tried to go so many times, of course, the merchandise was just getting started. I actually mm-hmm. remember seeing the box for the early bird figures that came out because, of course, Kenner had got the rights to these figures, but they couldn't get them out, the production of them out in time. So they sold a box with a promise that you're going to get figures. So I remember my dad saying, you don't need to get a box that has figures in it. They're not even going to be in there. And so we didn't. And I've always regretted that, even though I didn't really know say when I was five. So before I got to see the movie, the figures had started rolling out. So my brother got Luke Skywalker and I got C-3PO. Now, again, this is before I ever saw the movie. So I'm, I have C-3PO and I love him. I'm actually looking at my original C-3PO right now. And I was watching TV and Logan's Run was on and there was some sort of a weird robot on a, a trapeze. And I thought that was C-3PO. So I didn't know what was going on. Then I saw the movie. I figured out what's going on. And ever since that time, you know, Star Wars, I've been collecting since I was five years old. I've got an attic of about 800 square feet, and I'd say over half of that is Star Wars stuff. And I've got a nice little display here. When we got married, my wife agreed for us to walk out of the church to the throne scene at the end of A New Hope when Han and Luke get their medals from Princess Leia. So that was the music I walked out of the church to. The students at school know that I'm the Star Wars teacher, and you mentioned my writing for stars.com and IGN, of course. Coffee with Kenobi. So Star Wars, it's very much a critical, important part of my life. In my case, I was on the football field for my high school graduation rehearsal. And my friend Jim Reiki is late for rehearsal. But he comes running up to the rehearsal, and Jim is so excited. He's basically speaking in tongues. And just, I saw this movie lesson, and Millennium Falco, Wookiees. It's like, come down. You saw what? So a couple of days later, I myself make the trip. So I end up going to the White City Cinema in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts, to catch an evening performance of New Hope. And honestly, this is... One of my favorite nights at the movies of my entire life. I mean, I, I specifically remember that moment in episode four where the Millennium Falcon comes diving out of the sun and knocks Darth Vader's space vessel out and Luke is able to do the thing. The noise the audience made at that moment. That's one of the reasons why 
I kind of feel bad for kids today who, you know, again, don't get me wrong, you can sit at home and look at this on your giant flat screen television or on your phone, but you never get that noise. You never get that communal experience of several hundred people seeing a movie at the same time. And to be able to see Star Wars at night at a drive-in with a night sky filled with stars, that's killer. I'm sorry. That I think that your experience actually trumps my experience. But yeah, that once you get your first taste, I was hooked. Well, isn't you know, it amazing too? I mean, the fact that we're sitting here over 40 years later and everyone has a first time experience talking about when they first saw Star Wars. And they think that that just is kind of a testament to how this movie changed the way films were made, marketed, and embraced by the masses. I mean, it very much is our modern mythology. But as much as I love Star Wars, and obviously I really do, Indiana Jones is my favorite character and Raiders of the Lost Ark is my favorite Lucasfilm movie. Really? Oh yeah. There's just something about Indiana Jones and of course Harrison Ford well, is you know, that, the ultimate. But Speaking of which, we're about to slide into our news portion of the show here. So there is a little indie news out there and sure. just in the past I want to say week Steven Spielberg has obviously been out there sort of thumping the tub for uh, Ready Player One, which opens March 29th. As he's out doing press, Spielberg talked about how he's readying his slate of films for next year. And among the projects that he's looking to do next year is Indiana Jones 5, which Spielberg revealed they're going to start shooting in the UK next year, 2019, in April. Interestingly enough, the script is being prepared by David Cope, who you, of course, know was the guy who wrote Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Didn't I recall you really liked Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Or I love Crystal Skull. In fact, it's my second favorite Indiana Jones film, and most people kind of bristle at that. I kind of like the juxtaposition of Indy and Mutt, and when you look at that compared to Indiana Jones and Professor Henry Jones from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, I just mm -hmm. like how the student becomes the teacher. I, I like the role reversal, and Ford, of course, is just... He just is fantastic. I hope I'm in the kind of shape that he's in at that age when I'm that age. I like to be that in that shape right now. My goodness. <laughs> well, I have to admit, it's hard not to love the end of, of Indy 4. I love that that okay. whole hat rolling up the aisle and, and but reaching for it. By the way, I have to ask, did you ever get to read any of the other screenplays for four because there were a number of other writers who made a run at this project no i have um, not i have not i've uh, heard bits and pieces but i've never read them i've actually got a copy of frank darabon's oh, cool. version of the indie film and that one was called indie and the city of the gods now pretty much a lot of the same big set pieces because remember you know all of the screenplay the men who were handling the screenplay were talking with spielberg and lucas and they pretty much settled on the whole ufo alien lost city idea sure so what was interesting about city of the gods is they set it in south america in late 40s early 50s and the idea was rather than soviets the story coming out of World War II was how many Nazis had snuck off to South America. So the villains are Nazi war criminals. And of course, they're going after the tech that, you know, supposedly is hidden in the lost city because they're looking to revive the Third Reich. And it's got some interesting moments. But the one that I particularly loved that was a callback all the way to Raiders is that Marion and Mutt and Indy 
are hiking through the jungle headed to the city of the gods. And as they're making their way through the jungle, they see like giant butterflies in the trees and they see rabbits the size of cattle. And clearly there's some sort of corona effect coming out from the, the city of gods that's affecting the local uh, fauna. And so Indy comes across a snake. And both Marion and Mutt sort of get concerned because they know about Indy's fear with snakes. But Indy actually picks up the snake and just sort of brushes it aside. Oh, come on, guys. I took care of that fear 20 years ago. I'm fine now. But as Indy is turning to them saying this, the tree that behind them, that these giant vines going up the tree, and you see it's not a vine. It's like an anaconda that's 30 feet long. And it, it basically, its head comes out of the tree and just swallows Indy whole. But then Mutt and Marion move quickly and kill the snake and get Indy out. But there's this wonderful little scene right after that where Indy has like full alcoholic shakes afterwards. Snake, snake, why did it have to be snakes? And he's back fully into the phobia of fear of snakes. He would never forget that. No, it was a great scene. In fact, that was the thing. Frank's script was full of, of wonderful moments like that. I wonder why they didn't go with it. The thing of Indy is you have two people who created this character and supposedly Spielberg loved this script. Lucas was less enthusiastic and eventually Lucas talked to Spielberg and said, look, you're the guy who did Schindler's List. Do you really want to do Nazis as villains again? Because you kind of did the film that showed the world you know, how terrible the Nazis were. And he's like, yeah, I guess you're right. And so they pivoted to the Soviet thing, which then, for some odd reason, the City of the God stuff that Frank did didn't work quite as well. And that's why they sort of pivoted to David's take on, on the pretty much the same tale. Speaking of movies that are soon to be in production, you have that, that wonderful story from your phone interview uh, that you did last week. Yeah, I, I was, uh, myself and a few other members of press were able to have a conference call with John Boyega, which was an incredible thrill. Probably the most, the biggest guest we've ever had on coffee with Kenobi. And he shared a lot of cool things with us. Of course, at first he talked a lot about Pacific Rim and the fact that he's going to be starting a new television series where he's going to be working behind the camera instead of in front of the camera. He's very much wants to be a producer and just kind of try different hats in Hollywood. But he did mention that he's going to take a bit of a holiday after all the press for Pacific Rim Uprising. And then he's going to start training really, really hardcore for the next Star Wars, Star Wars Episode Nine. And he said he hasn't read the script yet, but he said that he he knows it's going to be all out war. And he's he's very much excited about it. Now, I find it interesting that whole quote about Star Wars is going to be absolute all out war. There have been a number of websites that have taken that clip and ran with it and said, John Boyega says episode nine is going to be all out war. Well, he doesn't actually say that, but you know how it goes with context and rumors, and which kind of transitions nicely to kind of the main crux of our podcast for today. Yes, a story just broke today over on Vulture, which basically has to do with the next Star Wars story that's making its way to theater solo, which is still on track for a release on May 25th, uh, 2018. And Chris Lee, the author of this piece that was just published by Vulture, evidently spoke with an actor who worked on Solo. Uh, to be specific, it's not necessarily one of the stars of Solo, but one of the supporting players, somebody who was able to be on the set for quite a while, that they talk about how they were there for four months while Chris Miller and Phil Lord were shooting the film. 
And then they were also beginning, I want to say in October of last year, were on set as Ron Howard shot the film. And I'm quoting directly from the article now. This source was in a prime position to observe the director's contrasting on-set modus operandi. And according to his description, the production was divided into two distinct chapters, one disorganized and chaotic, the other controlled and efficient. Vulture's source felt that Lord and Miller were basically out of their depth, that these guys were cut out more for light comedy, like, like say, the Lego movie that they produced in 2012's adaption of, of 21 Jump Street, that Chris and Phil finessed in su- to surprise hits. Now, as the story goes, once they were on the solo set, Miller and Lord supposedly were kind of overwhelmed by just the sheer size and scale of the film, which is why sometimes to get just something that they could work with. In fact, they, they evidently what they were telling Kathleen Kennedy is they were hoping to find the movie in the editing room. So what they do was they'd supposedly shoot individual scenes of the movie 25 and 30 times, which is crazy. Yeah. Which more to the point, which first confused and then exhausted the members of the set. Cause it's like, they just didn't know what they were supposed to be giving their directors. Now, now contrast this with what supposedly happened on the set of Solo once Ron Howard took over as the, the director of the Star Wars story. The same unnamed on-set witness described how Howard was basically this model of efficiency, how it would only take him one or two takes to get what he needed out of the cast, and then he'd turn to the crew and say, okay, move the cameras, change the lights, and let's get our next shot. And I have to tell you, as somebody who has studied Howard's career for years, one of my favorite films from Disney is Splash, uh, the Tom Hanks, Daryl Hannah film, which... Sure, Eugene uh, Levy, too. Well, yes, and of course, John Candy, who I actually worked for many, many moons ago, and that's another story. Anyway, what ended up happening is Howard found the sweet spot with that material. He was the one who was able to make the first adult comedy. In fact, you got to remember, that was the first movie that Touchstone Pictures released, and that was Disney's adult division. And you talk about your parents being so protective about taking you to a PG movie, you know, with Star Wars. And that was the thing. Disney had never made an adult comedy like this. And and Ron found a way to make it just adult enough, but fun and romantic. And remember, this is really the first time anybody saw Tom Hanks as a leading man. That's one of the reasons why he and Ron Howard have worked together forever. I mean, when you think about how many of the Da Vinci Code movies has he made at this point, or for that matter, Apollo 13, they love working together. But anyway, so what's interesting about Howard is the reason, of course, that he felt comfortable working on a Lucasfilm production is 30 years ago. This is the guy who worked with George Lucas on Willow. To hear Ron talk about his experience on that Lucasfilm fantasy, uh, out ahead of the show, I did some research and pulled up some interviews that, that Ron did for the 25th anniversary of that film's theatrical release. And uh, here's a direct quote from a lot of the interviews that, that he did during that period. He said, for me, working on Willow was sort of like going to grad school. Of course, George was a natural master when it came to this sort of movie making. Uh, Willow was his story, and I was very much under his wing while we were making this movie. And I really reveled in the experience and gained a lot of practical knowledge while working on this Lucasfilm production. But the logistics of Willow were were just intense. I don't know how I ever been involved in making a movie that 
was this complicated or arduous before? Willow was my first time dealing with multiple production units, and working on that movie wasn't just a huge physical challenge. Willow was also the most complicated thing I'd ever done. He flat out says, Willow was a huge turning point in my career as a director in a lot of ways. I learned a lot technically, and I also, just about the logistics of making movies on a large scale, and and it gave me a kind of confidence going forward. And he says, when you factor in all the green screen work we did on Willow, that shoot was 140, 150 days long. Willow was quite the journey. When it was over, what was really great is, I felt like I never had to be scared tackling anything ever again. And think about that, Dan. This is the guy who made Apollo 13. You had this A-list cast where half the time they had to pretend that they were actually in zero-G, which meant at one point taking those guys up in the Vomit Comet and try getting the studio to pay for the insurance on that one. Or for that matter, he's the same guy who shot The Grinch, which, let's be honest, is not the greatest movie, but when you look at how many people you had in full Dr. Seuss makeups with wigs and hair, and that was a 92-day-long shoot, and just getting a performance out of Jim Carrey. With contact lenses that supposedly felt like razor blades. Yeah, I mean, you know. So I'm really not surprised that this is the story coming off of the solo set that Howard just sort of stepped in and righted the ship. And if the stories are true, coming off of the Disney lot where, where they're supposedly, you know, doing the post-production on solo right now, I, they're tweaking right as we're speaking, Dan. Pretty much but part I'll, for the course though, really, you know, you know, as you mentioned on your, on your awesome series with, with Len Test about the history of George Lucas and Indiana Jones and Star Wars and the theme parks, about how things happen like this. When this first was announced that Ron Howard was taking over, there's a lot of consternation amongst the fan, or at least amongst the people that I talked with and, and speak with online and things of that nature. But to me, the fact that Kathleen Kennedy was so forward thinking and realized, hey, I know we've got already got a lot in the can, but this is Star Wars and we can't play around with it like this. So what no. they do is they take, like you said, they bring in a pro who's very familiar with Lucasfilm, very familiar with green screens and blue screens, and it's not going to feel the pressure because whatever this film does or doesn't do, he's still going to be Ron Howard. He's still going to have his credentials and his street cred. And, and he's also got a, you know, a very a burgeoning production company in the television world as well. So he's going to be fine. And, and the fact that he knows Lucas and Spielberg and he's been around this area, to me, that just shows me they're taking Star Wars so seriously because, it, for one thing, it feeds their families. And it's the story and the mythology that are very important to Kathleen Kennedy and the, the people at Lucasfilm anyway. So to me, this is all just encouraging. I, when I heard his name, I was actually kind of relieved. Well, you know, the, the other piece that came out of the Vulture story did that it fascinated me. Early on when all this was going down and we wondered, is this Rogue One again? Because there were all of those stories about reshoots and scripts being reworked and I love those guys who have gone online and taken the early teaser ads for Rogue One and just sort of pointed out the, hey, remember the film they told us we were going to get? But here's what's fascinating about Solo, a Star Wars story. According to this person who was on the set and watched Lord and Miller and Howard work, Howard worked off the exact same script. It wasn't a question of, whoa, let's stop production and 
let's rewrite, let's change the movie. It's like, he came in and it's like, no, this is a good solid script. I'm shooting this script. Yeah, Maybe. written by Lawrence Kasdan and his son. That guy knows Han Solo better than anybody. Well, there you go. I just love the fact that it's like, no, we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. This is good. This is a great script. That's why you decided to make it. Let me shoot it. Only a pro will do that. You know, there's a lot of people who'd walk through the door and needlessly say, well, I got to put my hands on this and we got to change this and it's got to have my handprint on it. I am really looking forward now to, to May 25th, having heard the story. And again, I'd feel better if I knew who actually was telling the story, who'd share the info with Vulture. Because to be honest, it doesn't necessarily seem like a hit piece on Lord and Miller, though oh. what's interesting is their rep supposedly came forward and said there's some inaccuracies, but they wouldn't be specific about what inaccuracies they were. But but even so, it makes me feel better to hear that how I thought Ron Howard would do with this project. It sounds like he actually did. Oh, I agree. And um, I like that they, it hasn't become like a, a good guy, bad guy. I think it's more like, hey, this is a legitimate difference in creative ideas and concepts, and we're going to respectfully go in different directions. There don't seem to be, at least on the surface, there don't seem to be any hard feelings. And hey, we're just going to do our thing. And we wish these guys the best. And they're being credited, I believe, with uh, executive producer credit on the film. Does that sound they right are. to you? And they also mention in this piece that Lord Miller actually had no problem with vacating the director's credit, leaving that to Ron. But at the same time, yes, accepting a, an executive producer credit, which is understandable given the amount of time they spent working on this project. Now, I'm hoping that as we get closer to the actual release of the film, Ron himself will do some interviews and talk about what it was like to, to you know. So speaking of, of promoting upcoming projects, finally, Last Jedi is, is hitting, in fact, the Blu-ray and DVD will come out. And what was kind of cool out ahead of that was just last week, they helped promote the film, Frank Oz and Mark Hamill sat down at the 92nd Street Y in New York City. And honestly, it was the most entertaining evening. These are two men whose careers I've loved. I've enjoyed their work forever. And it was 90 minutes of some story I'd never heard before. I mean, you being the longtime Star Wars expert, Dan, I bet you've heard some of these stories before. But had you ever heard that, that Robert Englund, Freddy from the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, he was the one who told Mark about that they were doing auditions for Star Wars? The only reason I am aware of that is because when we first started our website, coffeewithkenobi.com, there was a story that Robert England had commenting on something with Mark Hamill in The Force Awakens, and that was our most viewed web page for probably two and a half years. Really? So yeah, that's because they're just a mention of something in Mark, Mark Hamill and Star Wars and something in, in the future. So I knew they were close friends. But like you mentioned, these two were so entertaining. And Mark Hamill, especially at his Hollywood Walk of Fame ceremony just recently, mm. Harrison Ford referred to Mark Hamill as quiet. And maybe he is quiet, but whenever you see him on stage or in front of a group of people, I mean, he's Letterman. You know, he's, he's Carson. He, he's so outgoing and gregarious. And when he tells these stories, whether you've heard them for the first time or the 50th time, he sells them and tells them like they are. They had just happened and and you're his best friend. He's just, he's a storyteller. You and I were talking before we started even recording. He very much would have been a bard, you know, a thousand years ago. He He's that good. One of the high points of this, he does the best 
Harrison Ford impression? <laughs> Doesn't he though? <laughs> just talking about yeah, okay, kid, do it this way. And it just <laughs> it's it, true. was such great fun. But he talks about the whole audition process for Star Wars. He goes in for his initial interview, and it turns out there's Brian De Palma. And you know, he's the one who's sort of quizzing Mark about his resume. And this little quiet guy sitting next to him. And Mark eventually says, okay, so this is this is Brian's assistant. This is the guy who'll get coffee. He's like, no, that's George Lucas. Lucas's way of working was he just sat back and observed. And uh, that's the other thing that, that Mark was talking about, about the when they it came down to it, the two complete sets of performers for the film. I mean, I want to say one set had William Catt as Luke and the other one had, you know, of course, Mark. And, you know, he tells the story that like, evidently George is packing for London to go begin the shoot and he still hasn't chosen. And it was his wife, Marsha, said, yeah, go with, with Hamill and Ford and Fisher. Right. They, I, I like them. What was so much fun about this was how Hamill basically popped the hood on the whole making of a new hope experience. And I love the story about shooting the swing across the chasm at the death star, the, right. the, the scene, but Hamill talks about it. You know, he's looking at the script and it's like, Oh boy, I'm going to get the fly. I'm going to get that. They're going to swing across a set. I'm going to be like Errol Flynn and Robin Hood. And I, I did it in my backyard when I was a kid and I broke my sister's jump rope and I got in trouble with my dad, but now I'm going to get to do it on an actual movie set. And so Mark had done a lot of stage work. And so who's rigging him up to do this flying scene, but it's, the folks from flying by Foy. These are the guys who actually flew Mary Martin on Broadway when she played yeah. Peter Pan. So he's like, ah, oh, wow, cool. And so they wire he and carry up and, and they're ready to go. And so Mark figures we're going to be doing this all afternoon. This will be great. I'll get, you know, got flying out of my system, but, but no, George has four cameras set up. They do the swing around the castle. George checks all four cameras. We got everything you need. Okay. Moving on. That's right. And, and Mark is like, no, it basically throws a tantrum to the point where the flying by Foy folks are all right, fine. You want to fly? They unhook Carrie and they lift Mark up and they're zooming him back and forth across the set. And George is having a heart attack because <laughs> safety issues. Yeah. Well, yeah, safety. Never mind. You know, just the fact that, you know, if he hits the wall, I'll lose my insurance bond and we won't be able to complete the film. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, it was just all of these wonderful behind the scenes stories. I mean, he he talked He's about Mr. Things. Anecdote. He really is. It was. It was wonderful. I mean, I love when they're shooting the exteriors for the cantina. There's the bantha that's tethered up outside the building, and he's like, yeah. "Can I go? Can I go inside the bantha?" And it's like, "Sure, kid." And he says, "You know, you have to understand. This is the first movie, so it's not low tech. It's no tech." You know, <laughs> You know, the Bantha is basically made out of paper mache. I mean, he says, I'm literally, he sits inside, he's looking and it's all newspaper and he turns his head and like, wow, that's a review of David Bowie doing a concert in Paris. And before he realized he'd read the entire story and there's like a handle at the back that they use to switch the tail. And there's a crowbar in the front where you can use it to shift the fake creature's weight to make it look it's alive. And, mm -hmm. but then you, you jump ahead to return of the Jedi and he wanted to do the same thing with Jabba the Hutt. Can I go inside of Jabba? And they're like, okay. Uh, not realizing that once he got inside, that Jabba is basically a giant slug-sized sauna. Yeah. And what he finally comes out after having looked at all the mechanisms and comes out, he's soaked. 
And the hair and makeup people are like, oh, Hamill, come with us, you know, and <laughs> and have to get him camera ready again, you know. But Hamill kept trying to turn it and make it about Frank Oz because Hamill loves the Muppets. I mean, flat out loves the Muppets. When he was talking about shooting the Yoda scenes, he didn't just credit Frank. He also made sure to credit the two female Muppeteers who'd come over to work with Frank to do Yoda on the set which was really sweet that was making sure to spread the credits around. But he was a serious Muppet fan. He, Mark talked about how back in the day, if you loved the Muppets, one of the only places you could see them was on the Ed Sullivan show. And he said, but the problem with the Ed Sullivan show is that's on a school night that they only show that on Sunday nights. And so I would literally have to cut a deal with my parents. The nights that the Muppets were going to be in the Ed Sullivan show. It was like, is your homework done? Are your school clothes laid out for tomorrow? Are your teeth brushed? It's like, okay, then you can come to the living room and you can watch the Muppets. But as soon as they're over, you're off to bed. Mark talked about the first season of Sesame Street and how he enjoyed watching it. Now, Mark is born in 1951. And Sesame Street doesn't come on television until November of 1969. So he's 18, but he's going home and sitting down and watching the show on PBS because, well, okay, it's educational television, but they're Muppets. He just talked about how he loved watching Frank and, and Kathy and, and Wendy work. And Frank, to be honest, turned it around on him and said look you know half the reason that yoda worked especially in that first film is because you as an actor clearly believed in the character and because you believed the audience believed and and said to be honest given the amount of times that yoda malfunctioned and you were just basically performing to a stick that was held at the right height for the eye line the fact that you gave that performance was kind of amazing that's um, long been a thing that i think that some stars fans have realized or just people who are fans of cinema in general Mark Hamill is a really good actor. He got a little bit of grief for the, I was going into Tashi station to pick up some power converters line from the original Star Wars. But for one thing, I'm a teacher of teenagers. I know how teens sound. I know how they can get a little bit frustrated and a little bit quote whiny, but that was acting, right? Mark Hamill is a great actor. And the way, like you mentioned, the way he interacted with, with the puppet, with Yoda, he sold that. I mean, obviously it was a collaboration between himself and Irving Kirshner and Frank Oz, but, that shows you what kind of an actor he is. And I'm biased too, but I thought that he, he deserved at least some sort of consideration for a supporting actor Oscar for The Last Jedi because I thought he took some material, daunting material, because of what it meant for the mythology and the franchise and the character of Luke Skywalker. And he gave it such gravitas that we'd really never seen from Luke before. He's, he's a very talented man. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I think that's one of the nicest things about Last Jedi is that people who had sort of written him off, took him for granted, got to see what a charming, solid performer he was. That, that's right. Speaking of which, The Last Jedi, that he had upon a, cu a couple of things that I thought were, were really interesting. One was they asked him how he felt about this latest trilogy. And he said, I was kind of sad that the, the way the story played out at least, you know, in, in regard to The Force Awakens, because I realized that I was never, ever going to get the chance now to do another scene with Harrison Ford and, you know, a longtime friend. And I've, I've always enjoyed how Luke and Han Solo interacted. 
and then he also he talked a bit about Carrie and how Carrie Carrie had this wonderful way of describing the way Luke Skywalker looked in the New Hope. He's, he said you had that freshly punched look, you know, <laughs> as if everything was somehow overwhelming you and you you were just holding it together. And you know, to be honest, given that it was I experienced at a first big film and I was away from home and it's like, I wasn't really acting. <laughs> you know, it was, that's the other thing. He just so clearly missed Carrie. In fact, he did yes. tell one last story here. He talked about the time in 2012 where George Lucas sort of summoned he and, and Fisher and said, Hey, can, can you come up to Skywalker? We got to have a meeting. Then Hamill's like, Oh, it's another one of these edition things. We're going to shoot an extra feature or that sort of thing. And so he brings his, his daughter along and, George, you know, as they go in to have the meeting, and your daughter's going to go off and have lunch. We, we have to go into this room and talk. And so George sits Carrie and, and Mark down and basically says, okay, here's the deal. I'm retiring. I'm selling Lucasfilm to Disney. Kathleen Kennedy's going to take over as the new head of Lucasfilm. By the way, Disney wants to make new Star Wars movies. They'd like to have your characters in them. But if you don't want to be in the movies, I can have them write your characters out. And Mark does this thing on stage where he says, you know, he puts a finger up to the side of his face and, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. you know, and it's very, you know, poker face. But inside it's like, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. And on the <laughs> other hand, Carrie just immediately slapped her hand down to the conference table and it's like, I'm in. And her <laughs> the next thing she says is that, and is there a part in this for my daughter, Billy? But that was the thing. She wow. just embraced life. That's what, for me, just makes me, again, kind of sad because we're just not going to get to see what they originally planned on doing with Leia in episode nine. Um, right. Because allegedly um, that was going to be her story, whereas, the, you know, The Force Awakens was Ford's and The Last Shot I was Hamill's and she wanted to have nine all to herself. And who knows what that would have been. I know that a lot of people... Who had when they saw that scene in the Last Jedi where Leia Organa is blown into space and it appears it's going to be the end of her, and then she sort of force pulls herself back into the Radis, the ship that was named after the the Mon Calamari from Rogue One. When Ooh. she gets when she gets inside that, when I first saw that, I thought it was transcendent and beautiful. And there there's some background in the canon of Star Wars that backs it up. There's a, a novel called Leia, Princess of Alderaan by Claudia Gray. And in that, it's when Leia is a teenager. It's before the scenes of A New Hope. And this is, again, it's all canonical since Disney took over, which I'm really glad about, by the way. And she is going through these trials in Alderaan, and there is a mudslide. And she's about to be possibly suffocated. And she, for whatever reason, is able to kind of float away to safety. And it's not officially addressed, but I read this before I saw The Last Jedi because it came out well before. And I thought... Whoa, is Leia Force sensitive? Is that what they're alluding to right here? And sure enough, that was a you know a harbinger of what was to come in the Last Jedi. Now, a lot of people were hoping that, that would be a good way for Leia to kind of say goodbye and to pass on. But ironically, now, of course, she didn't. So the one actor of those three that's not alive is the only character that's still alive in the films. But you know, that's a challenge for J.J. Abrams that he's going to have to figure out. And he's a great storyteller. So I, I feel like, I mean, they've already said, even though Billy Lord and her brother have said, we're okay with you using a digital recreation of, of our mother, 
I don't think they're going to do that. In fact, they pretty much said they aren't, and I don't think they're just going to unceremoniously kill her. So, and I can't even imagine they're going to recast her either. That is a, it's a daunting thing, Jim, that JJ has to do. But if anybody's up to it, he is. I think they'll, I think they'll do the story justice. You know, and you know, again, like you said, it's awful that we aren't really going to ever get to know. But well, there's a will, there's a way, and there's some talented people that are behind the scenes trying to make this work magic. No doubt, no doubt. Now, before we wrap up here, I just want to let folks know that this presentation at the 92Y, right now there are two five-minute-long clips from the presentation available for viewing over on YouTube. Uh, you can probably find them with the search terms Frank Oz, Mark Hamill, and 92Y. But I, I have to warn you that it could be a while before the full presentation pops up online. They do do this, by the way, that, that if you go to the site and go to, toward the bottom, they have earlier presentations. So if you hang in there, this Frank Oz, Mark Hamill thing should eventually pop up. And it's well worth watching all 90 minutes. Though I have to tell you, you know, just sort of as a parting shot here, that you may not be happy with everything that Mark reveals. Like, there's stories that maybe Star Wars fans don't want to hear how... George, as they were shooting New Hope, was really very straight with Carrie and Harrison and, and Mark about how he felt that they were making a movie for kids. And, and Mark flat out says, that's why we expected to be on the cover of Jack and Jill and, and Highlights magazine rather than Time and Newsweek. So, you know, they were all kind of blown away when the world just embraced this movie but let's be honest here the really great supposedly for kids movies the things like the wizard of oz they somehow become for kids of all ages which is again why an old fart like myself is just sitting here talking with dan right now about the star wars movies well um, and that's why toy story was so wonderful and at its celebration orlando you know in 2017 in april 2017 Lucas was there, of course, as was everybody for the 40-year anniversary, and he said, I made stars for 12-year-olds. That's just why I believe that when there was that announcement that uh, the guys behind Game of Thrones were going to make two stars films, there was a little bit of angst and a little bit of hand-wringing because I don't think anybody, well, I shouldn't say I don't think anybody, I can't speak for everybody on the planet, that would be a logical fallacy, but I think Star Wars should be in that wheelhouse. I mean, I don't think we need R-rated in mutilation we need we need stories that that reach people from five to 95 well a friend who reached out from california who you, you talk about these new films the television series you know all the stuff that's now in the works and but again it's it's they're combing over the films they're looking at the stories for example we just talked about uh oh did we we did we forget to talk about general thron i we think did, we did we, we didn't forget we didn't talk about thron Ah, okay. All right. Quick, 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 quick here, folks. Delray Books revealed that July of this year, they're going to be releasing a, a, a Timothy Zahn book that will be a follow-up to his, his April 2017 bestseller, Thrawn. This book, Thrawn Alliances, follows the Grand Admiral as, as he's rising through the Imperial ranks and takes a look backwards to talks about Thrawn's initial encounter with Anakin Skywalker, the, the man who eventually becomes Darth Vader. But what's really interesting about this book, which what's going to make theme park fans go out and seek a copy of Thrawn Alliances, is that it's the Emperor basically telling Darth Vader and Grand Admiral, Admiral Thrawn that you know, there's a disturbance of the Force, and it's happened out at the edge of wild space, and it's 
the planet of Batu. So ding, that ding, name maybe <laughs> there we go. This is where Galaxy's Edge, the brand new Star Wars themed land that's being built in Anaheim at Disneyland Park and in Orlando at Disney's Hollywood Studios is set. So here we are. We're that won't be open until 2019, but in July of this year, you can pick up a copy of Thrawn Alliance and you, it's going to be our first in-depth look at how Batuu is laid out, where the shops are located, the Grand Market. And if you want to get in early and get a taste of what Star Wars Galaxy's Edge is like, be sure and chase down a copy of Thrawn Alliances. It's Lucasfilm um, storytelling, uh, the story group synergy at its finest. The fact that they are doing this and that they are, they are synced up so beautifully that it, that they, they have this plan, you know, so well in advance that I have a lot of good friends at Lucasfilm. I've been very fortunate over the years to have been to Lucasfilm three different occasions with many more to come, hopefully. And I just know what, what kind of care they put into this and the detail and the travel and the, like I said, they're, they're very long-term, like there's stuff that we're finding out about now that they've had in the camp for three, four five years. And I love that they're doing this. I mean, to hear about bad too, it's not just going to be something where you get to live the adventure, but now you're going to know there's certain things that involve Darth Vader, you know, the most famous character, arguably in star Wars and what that he is a factor in bad I mean, that's amazing. No, I agree. I agree. Hopefully in future installments of looking at Lucasfilm, Dan and I will, will get to take a look at some of these mystery projects that are, have been three, four, five years in the making. Looking ahead, though, I have to tell you what was the 30th anniversary of Willow coming up. We're going to definitely take a close look at that movie. And, of course, Solo, a Star Wars story. We're, you know, as they start to walk that one out, we'll be talking that one up as well. And I just heard this incredibly juicy rumor just tonight before we started recording. Do you remember the blind spiritual warrior and his mercenary friend from Rogue One? Sure, in way um, and Baze Malbus, of course. I was just told that one of the star wars television projects they're looking to build around those guys the earlier part of their story oh wow that would be pretty cool there there was one novel a, a young adult novel a disney novel about them called guardians of the wills mm -hmm. uh, which is of course taken off from the original novel which says from the journal of the wills looks in the journal of the wills and they're huge fan favorites my goodness if that were the case now donnie yen plays the blind uh, Chirin Wei, who's Force-sensitive but not a Jedi. Boy, if they had those actors in it, wow, that would be amazing. That would be well, huge. Well, again, I want to stress here, just heard it tonight, and this is a rumor, but sure. we, Dan and I will try on a future episode of Looking at Lucasfilm to chase this down to try to confirm it. And But thinking which, though, if you folks out there have any topics that you'd like the two of us to discuss or explore, be sure to pass those along. And by the way, if you can't wait for the next episode of Looking at Lucasfilm, please keep in mind that every week Dan is serving up blazing hot cups of Star Wars-related fun over at Coffee with Kenobi. You know, so be sure to check out that podcast. We'll have a cup of coffee waiting for you for a little bit of discussion, analysis, and rhetoric. Hopefully, we'll make you think and make you laugh at the same time. That's always the goal. What more can you ask in life? That's it for the debut of Looking at Lucasfilm. On behalf of Dan Zahara and myself, thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening to Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z, one of many great podcasts on the Jim Hill Media Network.